fort- folks. I guess this is good afternoon, actually, isn't it? Yay. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Randy Brunson with Centurion Advisory Group here for this episode of the Stewarding Family Wealth Podcast brought to you by Centurion Advisory Group. You can learn more about Centurion at centurionag.com. Short version, we're an independent wealth management firm. We serve individuals and company owners who've done well in business and in life in a variety of ways. But purpose here today is not to talk about our firm. The purpose here today is to have a phenomenal conversation with our good friend, Mr. Cleve Hill. Cleve, welcome to the studio. Glad to be with you, Randy. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here as well. And you're an attorney. I am. You are with the firm of Hill and Watchco. Hill and Watchco. All right. So uh, we were visiting just before we started the podcast. We're going to do a couple of episodes this afternoon. Mm -hmm. And what I found is I like stories. You like stories. Mm -hmm. Mike, our engineer behind the desk there, he likes stories. So let's, let's just talk about you. And you mentioned before just before we went on the air, something I, I didn't know. We just hadn't talked about this, but you are a sixth generation Georgian, but specifically from Cher- your people are from Cherokee County. From Cherokee County, uh, both sides of my uh, dad's family, his mother and his father, their people moved uh, to Cherokee County back before Cherokee was an incorporated county. So okay. prior to the 1830s, I believe Cherokee County was chartered by the state in 1831. My grandmother was a Reinhardt. Her ancestors uh, started Reinhardt College, now Reinhardt okay. University in Waleska. So we've been around uh, a little while over there. So I'm sixth generation. My kids are seventh because we still live there. Okay. And so it's it's home. And we've seen a lot of changes there from uh, extreme rural to uh, part of the metropolitan Atlanta community now. Just during your growing up years and through your adult life, your career, you've seen massive change in Cherokee County. Massive. Um, You know, one litmus test for the line of work I'm in, being a wills, trusts, and estates attorney, um, one of the markers in uh, the state law related to our probate courts is that a county that has a population below 90,000 people it's not required to have a lawyer as a probate judge. So we have 159 counties in Georgia. Uh, A vast majority of those are small counties. And so you will run into what we call lay judges in a host of counties across Georgia. That's starting to change quite a bit, but uh, Cherokee County now is, is over 90,000. We have been for probably about a a decade, decade and a half now, uh, and we've had lawyer uh, judges. But that's just one of the markers uh, that that I look at as as counties are growing is, has their probate court gone to a, a a lawyer judge. Okay, so that's that's interesting. Like I like that kind of interesting trivia. So so Georgia law is that if a county has fewer than ninety thousand people, they do not have to have an attorney as probate judge. That's they can cool. have a, a lay person, an experienced lay person, to serve in that role. That's right. And so, what happens in those counties is if there is a a dispute uh-huh. uh, in in a probate matter, okay. and we have a non attorney judge, then the losing party has an automatic right to have the entire case from soup to nuts reheard in the superior court. So those counties, if if a litigant does not like the decision, they don't appeal to the Georgia Court of Appeals or the Georgia Supreme Court. They first have to go and retry their case in superior court. 
then the losing party, if they want to appeal, that's when they get the entree into the, the appellate courts of Georgia. Fascinating, fascinating. Speaking of, I want to come back to to your specialty in a minute. Sure. We've got so many things I'd love to cover and hear more about you and, and so on and so forth. But uh, Georgia has 159 counties. Mm-hmm. And I believe memory tells me that Texas, which is significantly larger in terms of just the the real estate uh, has 77 counties. I believe that's correct. My friend Bill, who's been gone for a couple of years now, he was a, a retired attorney and a, and a fan of history as well. Mm-hmm. And he could he could give you the family history of, of every person that Georgia counties are named after, like Cherokee County or Bullock County or, uh-huh. you know, so on and so forth. Bill told me one time, fill in the details here, but it's, I understand it. The reason Georgia has 159 counties is that when the county system was created, the lawmakers at the time wanted to make sure that every taxpayer, every citizen in, in the state was able to get to the county courthouse uh, within a day's ride on a, what at the time was a mule or donkey or horse. Is that the deal? I, I have heard that, and you'll hear the um, superior court judges, especially the, the older and retired ones, mm-hmm. they talk about riding the circuit. Okay. And so... Uh, for example, 30, 40 plus years ago, Cherokee County and Forsyth County and Gilmer and Pickens, I think, were all in a single judicial circuit. So okay. the, the Superior Court judges now, which typically just sit in a given county because we've grown so much, those judges used to ride the circuit. They would go around to the various courthouses. About a third cousin of mine, Marion Pope, who um, is now in his late 90s, a uh, lawyer, served on the Georgia Court of Appeals for 25-plus years. Um, I have had the opportunity to talk to Marion several times over the years about his career, and one of the phrases you will hear repeatedly in talking with him is how much he loved riding the circuit back in the days. He went on the Georgia Court of Appeals in 1981, I believe it was, and uh, so prior to that, he, he served Cherokee, Forsyth, Gilmer and Pickens, I believe, yeah. was that single circuit. That's interesting. This is totally off the subject, but you were talking about riding the circuit, and it brought to mind there's a publication in Georgia. This may matter to Georgia listeners or not, but there's a publication in Georgia called Georgia Backroads. Hmm. Okay, and it is a it's a court. I believe it's a quarterly publication. I, I subscribe to it. It's a softback periodical that's focused purely on the history of Georgia, and it's a fascinating publication. I need to get subscribed to it then. Georgia Backroads, and they have a website. You can Google Georgia, look up Georgia Backroads and subscribe to it. It's a fascinating look, but one of the the regular features in that is called Rural Historic Churches of Georgia. Hmm. Okay? And one of the founders of Georgia Backroads, just obviously a history fan, right? A history buff and has taken time and interest to do this. But they have published a coffee table-sized book on the Rural Historic Churches of Georgia. I'm sure and I, I gave one to our mutual friend Charlie here for Christmas last year. Okay. And it, it's a fascinating look. But what, what brought to mind when you're talking about riding the circuit is I grew up in the Southern Plains in, in, in Oklahoma. But if you travel Georgia and across and go west, okay, many, many, many small towns or places that used to be small towns, they have these very recognizable rectangular clapboard white churches. Okay. The small Methodist churches, mm-hmm, okay, that mm-hmm. just populate rural America, mm-hmm. and especially across the South and the Southern Plains, and, and so on and so forth. I don't have any relatives that did this, but know the know the stories of the 
the preachers that used to ride those circuits Indeed. where they would, you know, once a month, once every five weeks, they'd have a live pastor, and the rest of the time they just met outside of that. So when you said riding the circuit, I thought that has several applications. Yeah, but I think you're right. Anyway, anyway, check out Georgia Backroads, and if, if you like coffee table books and, and Georgia history, there's also that coffee table book called uh, Historic Rural Churches of Georgia. I think I'll check it called. out. But yeah, check that out. Let's talk about let's talk about the law. So the laws cover so many bases, but you and your team at Hill and Watch Co. You specialize in estate planning work and corporate work. That, that's right. So our 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 practice is primarily wills, trusts, and estates. Uh, elder law uh, under the topic of elder law, uh, traditional estate planning, but also uh, long term care, Medicaid benefits. Oh my my, mm-hmm. my my partner Sarah Watchko is a nationally certified elder law attorney, one of only I think thirteen or fourteen in the state of Georgia. Uh, so under elder law, there's traditional estate planning, Medicaid planning, veterans benefits, and then special needs planning for families with disabled uh, children and, and adults that okay. we need to do planning for. We do a little bit of fiduciary litigation when executors, trustees, agents under powers of attorney have been accused of misconduct. We'll get involved in in those disputes sometimes as well. And then because so many of our clients are small business owners, uh, we do a little bit of corporate uh, work as well. Uh, There's oftentimes succession planning for the businesses that uh, dovetails into the estate plan as well. But that's the kind of the universe of what we've chosen to focus focus on. Uh, In Georgia, an attorney really is prohibited by the state bar rules from holding themselves out as a specialist uh, in a particular area. Uh, They've made a a couple of exceptions, elder law being one of those where they've recognized the the national test uh, that uh, lawyers can take to be certified as an elder lawyer. Good, good. Oh, by the way, speaking speaking of counties, our our uh, ever present engineer back here, Mike, has has clued me in because uh, thank you for bailing me out of here because I was certain that I would get an email, a text, a phone call from somebody saying, "Boy, you don't know what you're talking about," and it's true. I did not, so I'm not sure which. Maybe it's Oklahoma has 77 counties. I should know that. I survived Oklahoma's civics class back in whatever <laughs> eighth or ninth grade when right. they do that. Texas, here we go. Texas has 254 counties. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I thought Georgia was second only to Texas in the number of counties. That's exactly what Mike found. See, learn new stuff every day. So thanks for bailing us out, and thanks for the new information. So <laughs> for those of you trivia buffs that are listening, Texas has the most counties at 254, Georgia second at 159. Now here's what I'm going to have to look up later today is, is land size. Okay, because Texas is, uh, what, second? third largest after California, Alaska, I believe, in land size. Uh, that sounds right. That, that's what I'm trying to remember from U.S. history. I think that's right. Yep. Georgia's smaller. So that's your area of focus is, wills, is. wills, trust, and estates. I know that you and I met originally through your senior business partner, Phil that's Bettis, correct. who uh-huh. was active actively practicing at the time has since retired and of course my my friend and business partner charlie those two guys go back in cherokee county some decades Mm -hmm, okay mm -hmm. and you joined phil and i'd met charlie along the way and so you and you and i ended up meeting but but you did say that you do some corporate work since you represent so many business owners and and of course we we work with business owners as well which is one of the ways you and i've had the opportunity to to work together over the last few years for those of you that own businesses that are listening if you have business partners or if there's more than one shareholder, mm-hmm. I guess, or if it's an LLC, more than one member, mm-hmm. okay, and I'm going to he- depend heavily on you, Cleve, to keep my language and terminology clean and straight, right? Will do. Will do. Thank you so much. 
But if there's more than one member, more than one shareholder, then I, I believe it's absolutely critical to have a well-built operating agreement. And Correct. I will tell you what we experienced. Back in 2006, our firm, Centurion Advisor Group, went one, from one shareholder, which was me, to four shareholders. There were just some people that I'd identified that wanted to be a part of what we were doing and wanted to invest in the future of the company and, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm still not completely clear on the why behind that, except that we just, that's what happened, right? We needed a, a well-built operating agreement. And you helped us with that. You helped us put it together. And I want to ask you about what a, some of the features or clauses that a well-built operating agreement needs. But as far as I'm concerned, the test of an operating agreement is how well it works when there's a trigger event that commands performance. Is that is that a good phrase? That's that's totally fair. And you know, you can uh, you can draft those things and and try to, as my mentor you've mentioned, Phil always likes to say, uh, peeling the onion. There's always one more layer underneath. And so the the attorney's job when they are working on those agreements or really anything, is to try to anticipate where those trigger points are and how that process and procedure is going to work when those triggering events happen. Uh, whether that's the disability of a shareholder that works in the business, are we going to continue paying them, and is there a period of time after which they would be bought out uh, if they were actively working in the business but no longer can? Does that trigger that that buy and sell uh, at that time? Of course, the, the one we all think about is what if there's a death of a a partner, a shareholder, a a member in the organization. Is their spouse, is their beneficiary under their document going to get to step into their shoes? Uh, Nine times out of ten, people don't want to be partners with their partner spouse or children or what have you, and so having that structure in place to say, if there's a death, here's how we're going to go about the purchase. You always want to look at uh, how we're going to set the value uh, of the business when the triggering event happens, and there's multiple ways to do that. I'll, I'll mention ours, and I want to come back to, to you were talking about valuation, and I, I want to cover, you know, what, what are some of the key clauses that need to be included, or some of the key themes that need to be addressed within that operating agreement, because we do have a number of business owners that, that, that listen to our podcast, so I will tell you our experience. You put the operating agreement together. It's 2006. At the time, we had four shareholders, three of whom were married. And the decision that we made, which I thought was an outstanding decision, was not only did all the shareholders sign the agreement, but the three that were married, their spouses signed the agreement. Okay. That was in, let's call it the fourth quarter of 2006. Thanksgiving of 2017, one of our shareholders died. In the shareholder agreement, there was a, a clause that addressed what happens if a shareholder dies. What are we going to do? Okay, And we were intentional that in the event of the death of a shareholder, the estate of, of the deceased must sell and the company or remaining shareholders must buy the shares in question. And, of course, then we also had a valuation formula that, that described what those the value of those shares was. Okay. The agreement was so well written. I still have my original. I have it tucked away. I have my original. I know Charlie has his. But the widow, who was the executor of the estate, she found her copy. Bob was the deceased shareholder. Bob had held on to his. He 
all those things well. He held on to his, and his wife found it, okay, and she had it. And, of course, she had her, her son had a friend who was an attorney, you know, which is as it ought to be, all right? Mm-hmm. But it was a by-the-book transaction. She had the agreement. The agreement said, here's the way you value it. We valued it. We had our CPA run the numbers to calculate value as supporting documentation. I reached out to you. You prepared the documents to affect the transfer, the, the various and sundry documents that were needed. We came up to your office in early 2018, uh, and we sat there. You had the sleeve of documents for signature. We brought a cashier's check for the amount. And it, it was little just a by-the-book transaction, just about as clean as it could happen. And I credit that to the fact that, yes, Phil taught you well, but you were very attentive to okay, what, what needs to happen here for our business, for Centurion Advisory Group, what needs to happen in the event of, you know, what are the triggering events, and then what needs to happen. And it was, it was as clean as it could be. And then the, the, one, the one way we have modified, and we made this modification, I think in 2015 before Bob passed, but the, the one way we have modified the agreement since its original drafting is we modified the ownership language to allow shares to be owned by a trust for purposes of estate planning. And okay. that, that gets overlooked a lot in, in these documents. Okay, so let's talk about let's let's talk about uh, because we're going to do a couple of uh, uh, a couple of episodes here, and I, I do want to shift our attention to six things like succession planning and, and estate planning. And we may have to come back and do some more of this because there's so much to cover. Sure. But let's talk about the op- operating agreement for a minute. So, in an operating agreement, which assumes that you have more than one shareholder or more than one member, what are some of the key? F- clauses or themes that need to be addressed within that sure Uh, electing your your management structure uh, whether that's officers whether that is uh, under the LLC concept you can call them managers or CEOs you can use traditional corporate nomenclature for the offices in, in an LLC as well so your management structure talking about how the uh, finances are, are going to be handled, you know, who's the partner, who's the manager that's going to be in charge of all of the tax-related issues um, for the organization, talking about death and disability, like we've been mentioning here. What are those triggering events, especially on the disability side? What is the period of time that the person would have to be uh, away from the business and unable to perform before those events are triggered? related to disability and to death, how are we going to fund the purchase? Are we going to go out and get life insurance or some sort of uh, policy that would be, uh, you know, paying out upon a disability to give the liquidity either to the business or the various shareholders or partners to purchase uh, from that person? So that kind of then goes hand in glove. What you mentioned earlier is is the valuation. How are we going to do this? And, and we see those various ways. Some, the most common I would say is is getting an appraisal from you know a certified business appraiser to right. come in at that time and give us a figure. Uh, as you mentioned, or working with a CPA uh, who can you know extrapolate the numbers and and run the formula based on what's been put in the agreement. If there are multiple partners that perhaps this is the first time they've been through it and maybe they haven't built you know the level of trust with each other yet um, they will do a combination of things Um, they will set a procedure where the estate and the business can both get an appraisal done the business and they'll average the two together and that's going to be the purchase price 
along those same lines, you want to sit out and be real clear if we're going to allow the estate or the uh, deceased, uh, excuse me, the disabled partner through their representative to be bought out over time, uh, how are we going to set the interest rate? Uh, Over what period of years or months will the payout occur? And we even get so specific with some of them that we go ahead and draft Uh, a sample promissory note that's attached as an exhibit to the agreement saying that if the purchaser in the transaction does elect to pay it out over a period of years, here's the promissory note that everybody has agreed to ahead of time. This this is what it's going to look like. This is a structure, so just use a template promissory note, make it exhibit A, exhibit B, whatever, embedded in 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 the sleeve of documents. A fixed interest rate, or is it more com- I'm just curious. Now, mm-hmm. is it more common to tie it? I mean, like the pr- prime rates, what's published in the Wall Street Journal, you know, th- those kind of things. Is it common to tie it to prime rate as defined in, that kind of thing? Prime is, is, uh, is the most common that I run into when it is not a family business, okay. uh, where it's friends or, or business associates that have come together. They will do something like prime. When I'm dealing with uh, intra-family transactions, then the very common way to do it, because the the family doesn't want to take advantage of each other, is they'll tie that interest rate to the applicable federal rate that the IRS publishes on a a monthly basis, which is usually much less than, than prime. And that is the, I still run into this quite a bit. Let's say there's a a mom and pop who are running the business. They're wanting to sell it to child. And it's not uncommon for me to hear, oh, we're not going to charge interest on this. Well, Uncle Sam requires that that interest be charged. And even if you agreed not to do so, the IRS is going to impose that applicable federal rate uh, on the transaction. So, I typically tell everybody, well, I understand you want to, you know, kind of give a break here, but but Uncle Sam has told us we've we've got to set something, so let's use the the lowest one that we can that we can reasonably get away. And with. typically, the the applicable federal rate, or what what's often referred to, or I see it as AFR. AFR. Oh, uh, right, that's AFR. It's it's used for a variety of purposes when it comes to trust in estates and estate planning, and correct, and, and it changes. Is it Monthly, monthly it, they, it can they change publish monthly. it monthly, right? Because we get we get a we get a push email from something we subscribe to that gives us the AFR. Mm-hmm. So, but that is a for most purposes that's about the lowest available interest rate, right? It, it is, yeah. it is, because that, that's that's, that's going to be the one that that the IRS will just default to if if you've not set one. Okay, all right. Uh, so that's the default if the, if one's not identified otherwise. Okay, correct. All right, good. That's good to note. So, a well built operating agreement. Uh, needs to discuss the management structure, how the money is going to be handled, address triggering events such as death and disability of any shareholders or managing uh, or the operating shareholders or all of the above, whatever contingency they want to you know build in. Right, we we can do that. One that I haven't mentioned that I think is is really critical is when when I have clients come in, they're starting a new business and it's. Um, you know, especially where it's going to be a 50-50 partnership, right. that is uh, ripe for a deadlock scenario. Yes. One says yes and one says no. And if your agreement does not set forth how we're going to solve that deadlock, they're going to be heading to the court and litigating uh, with mm-hmm. each other. And so there are, are various ways to set out 
how you're going to solve that deadlock. Are you going to give a mediator or an arbitrator the, the right to solve that situation? Are we going to name a third party who can step in and solve that? What I am fond of is, you know, and, and if they can't resolve it, what I'm really fond of is what's often referred to as a Texas shootout provision. Say that again? Texas shootout. A Texas shootout. Mm -hmm. That sounds like an old western. Sounds pretty good. Tell us more. It's uh, it's interesting. So let's say you and I are business partners. We've reached that deadlock, and we just decide that this can't go on anymore. All right. So the agreement will say, I can come to you and make an offer to you in writing to purchase your shares, but when I hand you that offer— I am also saying I am okay with selling my shares to you at the same offer that I've just made to you. And the recipient of the initial offer then holds the cards on whether they are going to be bought out or whether they are going to buy out their partner. Okay, so one party, if there's this deadlock in a 50-50 arrangement, one party can say, I will buy your interest at this number, and I'm also willing to sell my interest at this same number. So that sort of forces, if you will, the party that's making the offer to come to the table with uh, sort of a best efforts equitable arrangement. Absolutely. So it's a they have to live with they have to eat their own cooking in this case. That's correct. Uh, so that's a Texas shootout provision. We uh, we need to wrap this up. I have one. Sure. I have a question for you. I've heard or learned or read or, you know, you just sort of bump around. You have conversations with people over the years, and you watch situations, and there's two thoughts I have. But one thing that I've heard is that a best-case scenario is that there is no no single person with a flat 50% ownership just for the reasons you were discussing, that it just – it, it – it lends itself to deadlocks and to tension and to unnecessary tension disagreement. Correct. Unless someone comes to your office and they absolutely insist that they will always be friends forevermore, amen, and they would never have a disagreement, doesn't matter. Even if it's 20 degrees in August in Atlanta, they're not going to disagree, okay? But short of that kind of conviction on their part, what do you generally recommend to avoid these kinds of deadlocks? Like somebody has owns fifty percent plus one share. That, that's a that's a common way to do it. Is is just make some somebody have that fifty one. With starting that new entity and everybody's kind of hopes and dreams are, are building around what this future could look like in a in a partnership where they're wanting everything to be equal. Some of them are just not willing to to give have one have that additional so then we end up with with these provisions that help get us out at least you you include that what you refer to as a texas shootout provision so that if when when that disagreement does come that there's some some language that facilitates resolution correct okay now i have a question i have a question though about minority interest and that is what actual authority do minority owners have but before we get to that let's wrap up this first episode of stewarding family wealth here at gwinnett business radio x uh, brought to you by centurion advisor group folks tune in just on the next episode and let's continue this conversation that's it from here thank you for listening